the first thing I'll, I'll clap just so they can listen to a clap. So here's I'll do like three in a row. Okay, there's three claps in a row. So that's not bad for keeping the beat. Um, the problem is I think we think of the beat as being the only aspect of rhythm, keeping a steady beat being the only aspect of rhythm. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Benjamin Steinhardt. Pianist Benjamin Steinhardt enjoys an international reputation for his innovative teaching and can be regularly heard performing in the New York metro area. He regularly agitates young musician festivals and competitions, and his writings and videos have been featured in Clavier Companion, The Piano Magazine, American Music Teacher, TheCuriousPianoTeachers.org, and iPianoTeacher.com. An artist of great versatility, Steinhardt is equally at home as a pianist in the concert hall, performance artist in theater, and a conductor in the orchestra pit. Recital and chamber performances as a pianist include Weill Recital Hall at Carnegie Hall, Merkin Hall, and Greenwich Music House. Work as a musical director includes Queen's Theatre in the Park, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the New York Musical Theatre Festival, Bravo Television, and cabaret spaces throughout New York City, including the Metropolitan Room, Studio 54, and Birdland. Mr. Seinhardt served as musical director for the Emmy Award-winning News in Review. Mr. Steinhardt completed his formal studies as a classical pianist at the Manhattan School of Music, the Boston Conservatory, and Mann's College. In this episode, we talked about ways that piano teachers can incorporate off-the-piano movement activities in their lessons. Just for me personally, if I had to pick one area that I wish I could move my teaching more in the direction of, it would probably be off-the-piano movement activities. So I was very excited to talk to Ben about this. Topics discussed include the pedagogical benefit of incorporating movement into piano lessons, Edwin Gordon and audiation, the limitations of rhythm clapping. We talked about Rudolf Laban, idiosyncratic ways of using a metronome, and using movement activities in games to show musical concepts like weight, the space between notes, phrasing, and meter. Hope you enjoy. Now on to the interview. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to be talking about how piano teachers can incorporate movement activities off the piano during their lesson. So I want to start with kind of a general question just about the practice of having a portion of the lesson be away from the piano doing these movement activities. So first, just basically, why is this important or helpful? I mean, if we were chess teachers, presumably we wouldn't do that much teaching off the chessboard, or if we were swimming teachers, we might not do that much teaching away from the pool. So why teach piano with movement activities away from the piano? I think that's a great question. Um, What I continually come back to is that the body is the foundation of all music, at least all human music. And that's true regardless of culture, whether it be Western cultures or, or other cultures. And it's particularly true of rhythm because um, we have this heartbeat, which has this continual pulse. We have our breath, which flows. uh, When we exhale, we have sort of an anacrusis. When we have an exhale, we have a crusis. And we also have duration to that breath. And we have the body itself, which does all sorts of rhythmic movements that we'd walk from foot to foot. We run, we jump, we skip, we tap, we clap, we dance. 
And so um, we also had the voice. And I think it was Kodai, who was a great Hungarian educator, music educator. And he said, even the most talented artists can never overcome the disadvantages of a musical education without some form mm -hmm. of <laughs> even if we don't sing well or in tune, that's fine. But, um, and I think even our harmonies in Western culture, at least, are, are based a bit on, um, on our natural voices and that ancient peoples, what they did is they, they sang together, they sang melodies, and the, the women and children would sing the high registers and the men would sing the low registers. And then in, in Western music, fifth started getting added to this, so you have tonic and, tonic and dominant, et cetera. Um, and from my perspective as a music educator, uh, what I found is that most musical issues um, teachers continually run up against, such as the inability to keep a steady beat, to feel larger phrase lengths, to shape melodic lines, can be solved through singing and through movement. And often the problems exist in the first place because the student has just never experienced these things in their bodies. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned Kodai as someone who talked about the importance of movement. I believe your teacher growing up uh, also similarly emphasized that. I, I was listening to one speech you gave and you had a teacher who was very well credentialed and even she was saying that movement is one of the most important parts of music. Oh yeah, I love, I tell this story a lot and I was just thinking about her because I think she's 88 now um, and I try to keep a little bit in touch, but she was a wonderful teacher who studied with... Um, uh, Carl Freiburg at Juilliard in the 50s, and he had studied with Clara Schumann. So she came from this amazing musical lineage. lineage. Um, but I, she would just like go on about everything I needed to do to be a musician at times. And she'd say, you know, you gotta, you gotta read it from the score and you gotta make sure you can do all the claps and you gotta do all these things. And, and well, one thing she emphasizes, she says, you should really take a Dalcrose course. Yeah. And they teach us at Juilliard and a lot of the teachers here think it's willy nilly was her <laughs> way of saying it. But she, she said, uh, movement is really the foundation of all musicianship. And that really Absolutely. stuck with me all these yeah. years later. Yeah, it shows that everyone agrees with this. I did an uh, interview on this podcast with Orly Shah, who's also a professor at Juilliard and talked about <laughs> Dow Cozy Rhythmics a lot. Um, no, so it shows, yeah, everybody is on board with this movement approach. So it's interesting that it's not a generally standard part of piano lessons. Another name that I kind of want to throw into this mix, you mentioned uh, Kodai. Another person who's very influential in this department is Edwin Gordon. And I know we could do a whole kind of dissertation or a whole podcast just about him. But without getting into the weeds, can you just give everyone a basic sense of what Gordon's main contributions were in terms of associating music with movement and how his ideas have informed your approach to using movement in your lessons? Yeah, so um, for people who don't know him, Edwin Gordon was a researcher and he was a music educator and he was very active in the later part of the 20th century. He died in the early 2000s and he had a PhD in psychology as well as two music degrees. So he came at it both as a psychologist and as a music educator. And his two big areas of study were um, the development of musical aptitude. So why certain students come in seeming like they are better at music than others and how that happens from birth through really sort of the age of five. And also all the sort of learning sequences we go through to become musicians, just like we go through learning sequences in order to learn to speak, to read, to write. And he coined a very important term, which sort of comes a little bit from Kodai's um, thinking music, but it's a little bit more complex than that. And the term he coined was audiation. Um, 
which in his uh, definition means to think music. So uh, a really good musician, they can hear a piece of music and they can say, oh, okay, this is in the major mode. It's in duple meter, it's in two. It starts on a five chord and then it goes to the one chord. And I can hear it in a way that I could go to my instrument right now and play it out. Or on the flip side, you can look at a score and I, I like to do this a lot, even if it's a score you've never seen before and you can have a pretty good idea of what it sounds like just from seeing the notation. Yeah, if I could ask a follow-up question, just so I can make sure I understand this definition, what would be an example of performing on an instrument or something that could happen in a piano lesson where a student is engaged in a musical activity, but is not audiating, if that's a word? Well, this is, sort of, uh, this is what a lot of students do, and that is they, they, they treat the instrument like they're just, um, you know, trying to play the right key at the right time. So they have no idea what they're listening to. Uh. And maybe they'll, maybe if you're lucky, they'll sort of count out loud, but they don't really feel the rhythm in any kind of context. Uh, They're just trying to play quarter, 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 C, D, E. That's a great example of, and not having an idea if the notes go up or down or what they do. Yeah, I can see how that is distinct from actually thinking musically. Um, yeah. So I do want to talk about this idea of different ways that we can get our students to feel rhythms. And I want to talk about the most stereotypical way that's so ubiquitous, it's almost a cliche in terms of music instruction, which is uh, clapping rhythms. I think that this is what most teachers do in terms of trying to get students to feel the rhythm in their body, or at least use their body as a vehicle to understand rhythms. And you've discussed some shortcomings to this approach of clapping rhythms. What is the problem with rhythm clapping and what are some substitutes our listeners could consider instead? So, um, well, uh, the first thing I'll, I'll clap just so we can listen to a clap. So yeah. here's I'll do like three in a row. Okay, there's three claps in a row. So that's not bad for keeping the beat. Um, the problem is I think we think of the beat as being the only aspect of rhythm, keeping a steady beat being the only aspect of rhythm. And um, one thing that, um, that Gordon got um, from a guy named Rudolf Laban, who I don't think music educators are that aware of. Yep, I have not he heard was, that name before. If you were a dancer, you'd know who he was. Okay. Because he was a really important pioneer in modern dance. And he also had studied with Dalkros, the great music educator back in the uh, 1920s or something like that. And um, he uh, divvied up music or rhythm into four elements. So you have time, which is the pulse. You have flow, the way music flows from beat to beat. You have space, which is the space between the beats, which is something that Debussy and, and Arthur Schnabel like to talk about right. a lot, the space between the beats. And uh, you have weight. So you have strong beats, light beats, medium beats, et cetera. And so when we clap, we do get, um, we do get the pulse. But what we're missing is, uh, for one thing, the claps are pretty much the same, depending on how hard you hit or whatever. So instead of hearing, say, strong, light, light, like strong, light, 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 right. or strong, light, light, strong, light, light. We hear everything is equally strong. Mm -hmm. So we're missing an important element there. The, also, the problem with claps is that there's no duration. Right. It just everything dies the second you do your clap. Mm -hmm. And there's no way of really feeling the space between the beats or the way the beats flow from one to the next with, with that. So um, Dalcros made this very important observation. Um, and that is that our larger muscles are work best for the sort of the big beat. So usually like the downbeat of a measure or even two measures. 
Um, and so our hips, our legs, our shoulders, our torso are good for keeping that larger pulse. And then our upper limbs, like the hands, the arms, the fingers, uh, they're very good for subdividing that into, mm -hmm. you know, if you're doing a big beat, you can do ba, 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 by swaying side to side or going from foot or walking. And then you can sub that, divide that into ba, 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 or ba, 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 ba. And then you start getting different layers. And the important thing, or what's great about this is because you're moving, you'll be making movements from side to side or backwards or forwards. You're going to feel that duration between those beats. So you're not going to have an isolated event, but you'll feel the flow. You'll feel the, you know, the space in between them. Yeah. That reminds me a lot of uh, when I used to take conducting lessons. Um, and when I first started, I would do a lot of what I think a lot of beginning conductors do where you kind of do a beat, freeze, swipe to the next beat, freeze, next beat, freeze. And he kept saying, no, you have to show the motion between the beats. And I think that's a lot of what you're talking about with swaying. I think that's a better way to show getting from one beat to another. And in a way, that kind of amateur conducting where you freeze on each beat has some of the similar limitations as clapping does, where you see each thing as kind of just an isolated event and we lose the flow and the connection and all we get is just uh, the pulse. Um, so going on this idea of pulse, one mistake that I made when I first started teaching that I think a lot of teachers make is when students play incorrectly um, in terms of rhythms, you assume that it's a reading issue and it's like, oh, they think an eighth note is a quarter note. And so I just need to remind them, no, an eighth note is half the beat. And you make it all about reading when oftentimes it's a lot more fundamental of an issue than that. And it does have to do with a lack of internalizing a steady pulse. Um, and so the standard solution to this is to use a metronome, which probably has similar limitations as clapping in the sense of, again, you don't show really much in terms of weight. You don't show the movement from one beat to another. So you mentioned before kind of using larger muscles, but do you have any um, specific movement activities you can kind of recommend or some creative solutions we can have to help students feel a true pulse as opposed to just being able to correctly read rhythmic durations? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I do use the metronome a bit, okay. but I'm a little untraditional in that I don't really like to use the metronome while a student is playing. I think it's much more effective to have the metronome going so they can feel the pulse and then to say, chant the rhythm of their piece uh, while they're moving or while they're tapping. So they really develop an internal pulse as oh, opposed to- To supplement kind of some of the shortcomings of just a metronome yeah. isolated, yeah. And, and some, so some of the things I might do with them, one would simply simply be, you know, walking from foot to foot or going from foot to foot and patting their sides or patting their lap. Um, uh, I might have them do exercises like um, I'll have them keep a steady beat with me for a while and then I'll drop out and then have them continue the steady beat while I'm not playing and then come back in. And you can even see if you can have them continue a steady beat in their head at times. So they'll do it physically first and then see if they can say, doing a bar by themselves, just feeling ba, 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 ba. And if they get good at that type of stuff, you could also like play something completely different than what they're doing with their beat and see if they can still Ooh, make that's that. hard. Yes, or something at a different tempo for, <laughs> for students who are starting to get stuff. And then you can do all sorts of, you know, a lot of the stuff is just being creative about how you approach these things. So uh, if I have a student working on like a minuet or something, We'll make up a little mini dance, for instance, simply, you know, step, slide, slide, step, slide, slide. 
so they get uh, they get the beat, but they also get that that larger, you know, uh, strong weak, strong weak, and, and they feel it in their bodies. Um, I, I think a lot of the problems students um, run into when they with rhythms is, and particularly beginning students, as they say, you know, we see this all the time. We get a half note, and they cut the they cut it down to a quarter. Always, just, yes. <laughs> So, so there's certain things you can do. You can have them clap during that um, missing beat. You can have them catch mm. a fly, pretend to catch a fly. You could also do movements or, and gestures to feel the duration of the missing beat. So you can have them do something flowing in their body with that or, you know, a swiping motion or, or something along those lines. So they're not just feeling the, you know, the note as they play it or, or the, you know, the, the note as it's initially made, but they're also feeling it throughout that whole time. Or you can have them doing something with their voice, like <laughs> to feel again that duration. Anything physical to feel the duration of the pitch. Yeah, I mean, because using your voice, you can show sustaining um, a sound and moving from mm -hmm. one beat to the next in a way that you couldn't with clapping. Um, I like that suggestion you were making earlier. So if it's a minuet, you could do step, slide, slide. And that's a way of kind of showing that beat one is a little bit more emphasized and the other beats are not. Um, one thing that often I struggle with in teaching is if you're talking about strong and weak beats, is that when we talk about which beat is strong, we don't literally mean that every single measure is strong, weak, weak, strong, weak. I mean, that is kind of a tendency, but you would never do a piece in three, four, where every single downbeat is accented. There is a larger phrase. So I understand that you could do step, slide, slide to show that um, beat one is a little bit um, more pronounced than the other one. But anyway, we could use movement activities to show kind of some of the larger phrasing so that we don't end up in a situation where just every single measure is bah, duh, duh, bah, duh, duh. I, I think that's a great question. And and there's a big difference between sort of large stomping movements, which is yeah. what I think students do, and, and pulsating flower, flowing movements. So if a student is really emphasizing every beat, I want to give them something where they are feeling a larger flow. So, so something where they're swaying side to side, um, uh, maybe they have a scarf and they just do a little tap on each of those beats. Uh, or you can use imagery, you know, you're, you're floating in space or something along those lines so they can feel those larger flowing movements. Wait, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Can you clarify what you mean when you say tap with the scarf? Oh, yeah, sure. So if you get one of the, I, I have a box of scarves in my um, studio. They're probably my favorite tool because they, they're so versatile. And what you can do is you can say, for instance, go across the body, or you can even make figure eights to get this sort of flowing thing. They flow beautifully, oh, flow beautifully yeah. in the air. And then maybe on uh, on a beat, you'll just give a little dip with your wrist or something. Mm. And that's the primary beat. Um, and uh, Schnabel, getting into like higher advanced music or whatever, but his complaint was all his students emphasized every beat. So you can start thinking about pairing bars. And I think that's really important because um, three, four is a perfect instance. It's almost always incredibly unmusical to emphasize um, every, you know, to em emphasize every downbeat in three, four. It's usually the right. So if you can, uh, be because we're we're bipeds, we have two feet. <laughs> if you simply feel yourself walk from one foot for one group of three the other foot for the other group of three, you start feeling them in pairs. You start feeling them in your groupings. Da, 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 
Huh. And what you were doing there, just I know this is an audio only podcast. Mm. I know this wasn't I'm not sure if this was on purpose, but you also kind of bopped your head a little bit. So it was like uh, there was the swaying that showed every other measure, but then there was kind of a head on the downbeat. I'm just trying to think about this in terms of a way to show the students. There's kind of three levels. There's every individual beat. Then there's kind of within each measure what gets the stress. And then there's over the course of the entire phrase what gets the stress. Does it get too high concept? Is there a way to show all three of those simultaneously? Yeah, I mean, I think that the easiest way to, to do it is through movement. I think if you yeah. try to explain things intellectually, it's really right, hard. Right, forget Whereas it. Students will copy you simply, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, I was sort of bopping on the, the, yeah. the of the two, uh, maybe doing a little mini bow, and then I was swaying from side to side. And I had movement going continuously. I never stopped that movement, which I think is also the really important thing of any mm-hmm. kind of activity. Yeah. Um, another extension of movement that I wanted to talk about with you that I've heard you speak before is kind of turning movement into games with students. I know um, Gordon has some games. I don't know if you've done other, but with my students, I'm always trying to think of games. Is there any way of sort of gamifying some of these movement activities? Oh, definitely. Um, uh, uh, one thing I like that Gordon used a lot was um, was his home note game. So uh, this is to just help students, uh, you know, come up with a um, or, or be able to hear the tonality of a piece. And usually, you know, in particularly in Western scales, we're always going back to um, sort of common practice music scales. We're always going back to that home note. So he, you can do things like you'll you'll play the piece with them. They can sing it if they like if it's a singable melody. And every time you get to the home note, you can have them do you know freeze in place and make a you know a silly face or, or whatever it is in order to sing that. And then they can sing the home note um, every time oh, they get. Interesting. So they start really listening for whenever that home note occurs. I think that's a really fun one. You can do lots of things like um, with balls. You can you can do um, my students love these ball games you can you can either pass them on the floor to each other to sort of get that flow that legato flow from from mm. person to person if they're if they're That's breaking up things you can do things like um if you're in, in if you're in duple meter you can do like um a bounce catch bounce catch bounce yeah catch. If you're in triple meter you can do bounce catch pass bounce catch pass i don't know if you've ever used wendy yeah. stevens rhythm cups oh um, totally. that's i think kind of comparable yeah yeah, absolutely. And that's the same thing. It's very physical using those those cups and, and right. you know, manipulating and stuff. So. Yeah, and the students find it very, very fun. Um, okay, so I want to see if we can kind of, before we go, put this all together and talk about how this might work in real time. So I don't know if um, there's a specific example you like to use or if, there's, if we could talk about kind of a specific piece. So you have a student come in for a lesson and they have the piece in front of them and you want to incorporate movement. If we could give kind of an example of how this would work in real time. Okay, so um, because I know most of, uh, many of your listeners are piano teachers, I'm gonna pick something that's going to torture them a little bit. So okay. my, um, I'm gonna pick everybody's nightmare piece or most teachers nightmare piece, which is for Elise. I knew you, yes, I was, I had a few <laughs> guesses in my mind of what you were gonna say. I knew, it. no, that's a great one. Let's talk and about the reason I'm picking it is because one, we all hate it because we hear it so much. Um, but he comes in wanting to play it, um, even though frequently they can't. Um, but uh, the other reason we hate it is because it's usually so badly played, mm-hmm. and that opening is so badly played. And the opening is very tricky because yeah, it we, starts on a pickup. Yeah. Exactly, mm-hmm. it's very tricky because it starts on a pickup, 
And it really starts with sort of two levels of pickup, two levels of anacrusis. We had this first little mini pickup, which goes into the downbeat of the first measure. Ba-da-da. And then we have a larger anacrusis, which goes in the downbeat of the second measure where the left hand comes in and we hear the tonic chord. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and of course, every single student on the planet plays it. Da, 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 yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is, you know, um, so uh, very, so what I would do is I would try to create those two levels of anacrusis. I might have them sway side to side. I might have them um, flow with a scarf side to side mm. and just zippy motions, etc. And I would see if I can just get them pulsating so they can feel that larger beat. And then when it comes to that second measure where we have the larger gesture, I might have them, for instance, step forward, or if I had a pillow, they could even press into the pillow. Oh, interesting. If they're having trouble with just feeling anacrusis, I might have them jump into that downbeat, uh, or I might have them put their hands together, and then every time it's the, the really big one, just fling their hands apart. Da, hmm. da, da. Da, 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 yum. Oh, this is so creative. And then I love to do just, just imagery with students. So we might just come up with an image for movement that um, that reflects the piece. So I don't know. This piece is to me something like um, swimming in the moonlight on a, in a placid lake or something like that. So we might try to feel that in our body so we don't get da, 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 da. Right, because you would never swim like so when you bring up swimming, it kind of nudges them to play more gracefully. Exactly. Yeah. That's so creative. I like that. And what you're talking about, would you do this with them before they even play any notes on the piano, or would this come more later in the learning stage? Or both? Both, but I like to introduce this stuff often before we play as we're listening. I think part of the problem is is we, we frequently start with the notation. They build up all these very unmusical habits of just the struggle of trying to read the yeah. notes, and then they try to make it musical. If you can start musically before you end up cutting, you you, you have a great shortcut. Yeah, that completely makes sense. Um, so before we go, obviously, uh, today we only talked about movement activities, but as anyone who's active on social media probably knows, you have a lot to say about all sorts of topics related to piano teaching, not remotely limited to what we talked about today. Can you give our listeners a bit of a sense of what you're up to now? and how everyone listening can learn more about you? Sure. Well, the, the best way to find out more about me is to go to my website, which is www.benjaminsteinhardt.com. Uh, I do a lot of teaching and I do a fair amount of performing too. And I have a blog on there, which I try to update on occasion with usually articles about teaching or about repertoire. Mm -hmm. And I also have a teaching page where I show all the various presentations that I do. Um, and, and as you said, I'm on Facebook a lot cause I, um, I moderate, I think it's five of the music yeah. teacher group right now. Um, so that keeps me very busy and I'm right. very comfortable on there if you're a Facebook member. So, well, no, those groups have been enormously helpful to me and I'm sure thousands of other teachers. So really appreciate you being so helpful with all of that. And thanks again for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for tuning into all keyed up. I'll see you next time.